Hi, I'm Claire. Welcome to Behind the Crime, The Victim's Voices. I'm a broadcaster, podcaster, and I was a career detective at New Scotland Yard in London. So I've started to listen to a lot of podcasts about crime, specifically in the UK. And quite frankly, I was astounded. Currently, the career criminals, the Mr. Biggs, they're given a huge platform, almost celebrity status with books, films, etc. And okay, fair play to them. But it got me thinking, what about the other side of the coin? What about the people who've been victims of crime, too frightened to report things, being believed, being judged and having to go through a drawn out judicial process. So I've decided to address this and talk to people who've gone through just that. And for me, in my honest opinion, one of the most horrendous crimes, and I've literally investigated a lot of them, one of the most horrendous crimes is sexual offences. Um, it's a horrendous violation with so much to it. And so that's why I'm really grateful to be joined by Sophie, who was the victim of rape. And she did pursue justice for two and a half years, resulting in a conviction. And she wants to talk to us. So it's obviously really difficult stuff. My first question to you, Sophie, apart from saying thank you, is why? Why do you want to do this? Um, so I think that when I was going through everything, especially going through the court process, I didn't know anybody that had gone through that process. I had so many friends and people that I knew who had been a victim of rape or um, sexual assault, but no one ever really took it any further. So while I was going through it, I kind of said to myself that I would want to try and help those people that like I didn't have going did, through it. Just just on that question, did you know before that they'd been attacked or did that come out afterwards when you divulged that you'd been raped? A bit of both, right. really. Like as I opened up and said that that's what I was going through, there were a couple of people who said this or even someone said um, their housemate was just about to go through it and she did ask like, oh, if this does go through court would you mind talking to her if she was open to it but yeah so I have had a number of friends who have been sexually assaulted and raped in the past and that's sort of as far as the conversation went right it wasn't they just never reported it so they either initially reported it or just didn't do it at all why why do you there's there's a lot of stigma around this and I think it's great that we are now talking very openly about it but why do you think uh, a woman or a man won't report to the police that they've been sexually assaulted. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of it is down to fear. I think fear of the unknown of what could happen because you don't hear about what exactly the court process is and all of that. So it's just a big unknown. So people are feared, fearful that they like won't be believed. Um, I think a lot of the time as well. When we go out, we always get told you know, don't drink too much, you know, put your hand over your glass while you're out, um, don't wear this, don't walk alone, don't do all the, so the whole list of things. So if you happen to do one of those and it results in a rape or sexual assault, we automatically will blame ourselves because we're like, oh, well, we didn't, we didn't do that. So it means that we've done the wrong. So it's our fault, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really, really important to point out because if you're out there and, and you can resonate with what Sophie's saying, it's not your fault, it's their fault. It doesn't matter how much you drank, what you wore, how much you trusted someone. If you thought you were being naive, it is not your fault. A sexual offence is committed by someone, not you. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things that I struggled with. Because afterwards I'd be like, well, if I had just done this or if I hadn't have done that and you just automatically go into that mode and then you start thinking about like other people and you're like, well, they wouldn't have been this stupid to do this or they wouldn't have done this. And it's just, I think without knowing, you start just blaming yourself straight away and you have to almost keep telling yourself like, actually, did you do the, those actions? Did you say, yes, please, can I, can you rape me? Like, no, you didn't. That's probably one of the wisest things I've heard, actually. And if you are out there and, and you've experienced anything like this, I'm hoping that through this conversation we can open up 
some honesty and some realism and some education and we'll signpost you so you are not alone because a lot of people who go through this feel very alone do you did you feel like that um yes I did feel quite alone and again because I didn't know anyone that had sort of been through that so much and I think actually when I started opening up about my experience I got to hear other people's experience in maybe more detail than I would have if we'd not had that conversation in the first place it wasn't like it happened to me and I thought right I know who to go to it was quite um at times yeah it could be quite like isolating yeah and and knowledge is power and knowing actually that you're not alone and I did a little bit of research on some of the statistics in England and Wales more than 99% of rapes reported to police do not end in a conviction. Sophie, why do you think that is? Well, I think a lot of the time, one of the reasons will be there's not enough evidence. And so it will just get dropped straight away. And also, if there is evidence, uh, the the whole question ends up being, was it consensual or not? And then it's just two people saying different things and which is a lot harder to convict from. Of course, it's, it's not a crime that you're going to have witnesses to, is yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And um, we we are... I'm going to ask you some difficult questions, Sophie, but I think it's really important, and we are going to go into detail of exactly what happened to you, just so we can explore more about this horrendous crime. And if you find yourself a victim of it, what you need to do... Sophie, I know this is going to be difficult for you, but I think it's really important. I need to ask you what actually happened on that night. Uh, so I remember it was a Sunday night and I, I I fancied a glass of wine. And so I thought I'd just pop around the shops because um, we had a um, an off license just around the corner from us. And so I thought, oh, I'll just I'll just pop out and go and get a bottle of wine. Just like normal, really, I would go around there sometimes to get a drink or something and um so this one night I went in and I was buying my bottle of wine and the guy who worked there who actually owned the shop started talking to me about um how he needed some extra people to do a shift here and there and so he basically said would you be interested and um I thought why not sort of like I work nine to five and then it's only around the corner so I can do a couple of hours here and there and the shop wasn't that busy and it just seemed quite easy and so he took my number and I said like oh yeah okay I'll I'll contact you he then asked me oh like would you like a drink I at first I thought he meant like go down to the pub and have a drink and I was like hmm and he was like oh no like here and I was like oh um yeah sure why not I mean I'm one of those people that if if I get offered (laughs) a a free free drink then why not um the shop was still open for like a few hours and I didn't really see anything wrong with it and I I I think I was finding it finding it quite funny actually that um I'd gone in to buy a bottle of wine and I could come out with you know a bit of extra work and so you'd met him before Mm. you'd seen him Mm. several occasions and was there CCTV there? Um, yes, there was, but I only knew that later on when because uh, we had we had a drink in their like their back room, so it just led on to yeah, it led led into the shop. Um, so if anyone came in, he could just go out and serve them, and so it wasn't. It seemed it seemed pretty safe. Yeah, the shop was open. It wasn't like after hours. So you went into the back room, yes. and had a drink with him. Yes. So I remember he kept giving me um he kept refilling my glass every time that I'd had a drink I was I think it was a vodka vodka and coke and we were just talking and I like I'm quite a friendly person so we just talk about anything and like at the time as well because my I had family that lived on the road as well he sort of knew one of my family members who would go in so there was sort of that in common and so there was a bit of reassurance you felt safe yeah and um I mean there were things afterwards that I realized was just sort of like a pure lie because uh, we started talking about um like where we both came from and religion 
and stuff so he would say like he said that he went to the same church as me and at one point he did say that he was half half catholic and half hindu which at the time i just kind of take people at face value and i'm like oh, okay cool you know whereas afterwards i was like actually that, that's not actually possible you can't be both um did you did you have that magical um crystal ball in your handbag sophie <laughs> no <laughs> i wish so <laughs> but, um Yes, I think as soon as like he said that, I think I felt more comfortable as well because I think I don't know. I guess it's just with faith. If if you've got that sort of common ground, you feel a bit more comfortable. And so we just kept having a conversation. He kept filling my drink up, which I didn't really notice because it was kind of. I think it'd be before the drink was gone, he'd be topping it up. So I just always sort of. I'd be putting my drink down and like he was drinking I always I'd, I'll always remember he was drinking brandy and in between he'd always drink um a glass of hot water because I found that quite strange but I always remember that and um there were he did seem a bit he did seem a bit creepy at times but I sort of brushed it off and I didn't really say anything because I always find with people you just if you put up like if you have like a if you confront someone or you say something it's just so much easier to just get along with people well that's the thing with us brits isn't it yeah (laughs) we we don't like confrontation we don't like to call people out we like to see the best in things Mm. um that doesn't give it any excuse yeah for you being raped yeah what happened next um so i remember i went to the I went to the bathroom which was literally just sort of there just in a little room and I came out and then I, I I'm I, I sat down and started talking again um and then I just basically have this big blank and so the next thing that I remember um I was still sat on this chair and the next thing I remember is that he was he was knelt down next to me and my trousers and my knickers were down um and he was just kneeling on the floor next to me touching me um and stuff and I didn't like I didn't feel I don't know it was it seemed a bit like hazy and like didn't really acknowledge I think what was really going on and sort of that sort of when it happened and I like I blanked out little bits of it so it kind of like was almost like cut scenes so then I remember him being sort of in front of me and that is then when he raped me and I feel like I was I couldn't I don't know how to explain it but like it's like almost like I couldn't move like I tried to like like move back in the chair but I couldn't like it was like my body was just sort of limp do you know what from an investigation point of view from my experience um it could have been you were spiked Mm. because that's often a common effect Mm. it could also be sometimes your brain just closes down to protect yourself Mm. um and and it's that fight or flight where you have this fear the adrenaline and often when i've spoken to rape victims they just find they cannot move. Mm. It's just impenetrable. You can't move. So there's lots of different explanations for that. Yeah, no, I've actually heard, like, when people are talking about fight or flight, um, I've actually heard lots of people say there's actually fight, flight and freeze. And because before I was like, oh, fight or flight. I didn't do either of those. Like, And then there's this other explanation but then also I obviously questioned myself a lot because when my bloods came back afterwards they didn't find anything but I know we've had the conversation before things can leave your body really quickly so I mean I'll never actually know yeah with with spiking yeah it, it can get out of your system very very quickly within 24 hours so one of the things I've picked up from what you've said is even if you're not sure about reporting something. If you think something's gone wrong to you and you don't quite know what's happening, hmm. do your own urine sample, take it, bank it, and then have a think about it. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, I agree. And I think as well, actually, what I've going off track for a little bit, I've now found out that also what people can do with like drugs in your system is test your hair and that it stays in your hair a lot longer than in your blood. 
which might be something that could change i think that's definitely Um, something for a further discussion yeah absolutely but yeah going back to it um he eventually did get off me and again it's one of one of my vivid memories is then of him being next to me still like pleasuring himself and being like oh but i haven't finished yet and then again then it goes blank again and the next thing that i remember is walking home um i don't remember any of the that in between bit of me actually getting up and leaving and i was walking again it was literally two minutes around the corner and i was walking home and it then it suddenly dawned on me like what had happened and i just had this like rage (laughs) i guess it was like (laughs) my fight (laughs) then kicked in and um I decided to go back and confront him and um so I started walking back and he drove round he'd locked up the shop by then it was about one in the morning and the shop shut at like 11 um so I didn't really I had no sense of what the time was really and um he was driving back to his house i guess um in his van and he stopped and i started having a go at him in the street and i remember just saying like do you know what you just did i don't remember anything that he was saying but i i basically said you you basically just raped me and i made a bit of a scene and he drove off and so then that's when i carried on walking home got in a mess I text a couple of people, one being my partner, and just, yeah, went to bed. it's good, actually, that you immediately reached out to someone, even if at that point you didn't know about the reporting aspect, what you wanted to do, where you were at, you reached out to someone. So I think anyone out there listening to that, if you can just do that, and also you going back to confront him... Sophie, either incredibly brave or incredibly <laughs> stupid. Can't say I'd recommend it. Yeah, no, I I wouldn't recommend it looking back. Um, I think that was like my fight or flight kicking in. Um, my fight. Yeah. Uh, just suddenly sort of, I guess it just dawned on me what had happened and I didn't really think about it. And just, I think I just felt really angry and kind of just, it was sort of automatic yeah. and I just went back. But in hindsight, that's not something no. we would recommend. No. But you were you showed incredible courage during that and also in doing this podcast it really is really rare to get a first-hand account on a public platform Sophie can you tell us the process of reporting this crime evidence gathering and your experience in court because to be honest most people only have preconceptions of a drama on television and it can give a false sense of reality so how was it from your perspective so the next day um was a monday so i was meant to be going into work um which i didn't and because i had told my partner he had basically said okay you need to tell your dad um because i was living at home at the time so i did um and it was my dad who um rang the police and so they came out maybe a couple of like a couple of hours or something after he'd reported it so they came to the house and sort of just went through like, okay, what what happened? And that's when they took my clothes that I was wearing. Um, I had to pee in a pot and they sort of got that all like wrapped up and um, so they could take it off to yeah. the lab. The, the, I think they call it the golden hour, the first opportunity after an offence like this has been committed that it, to get as much evidence as possible really is key to a prosecution yeah yeah so like the advice would always be like don't shower or brush your teeth or anything after and even if and like keep those clothes um sort of ready for that rather than like putting them in the wash yeah so basically so they can have as much evidence because in, in all honesty that it, it is kind of if you've been raped your knee-jerk reaction is you want to get clean mm-hmm. you want to disassociate yourself from everything so what you were wearing all that kind of thing comes into play. So if you've just got that in the back of your mind, no, just keep that to one side, even yeah. before you decide what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah, so they... Um, so after that, I think they went off for a little bit and then they took me to a SARC centre, which is a sexual assault 
referral centre and I think they've got them all over the country. And so, so yeah, so they took me there and a number of things happened there. So I waited for a little bit and then I spoke to someone there. I'm not sure who exactly they were, but they just had, again, questions like what happened. Um, At that point, I was by myself. My partner had to leave the room. Um, I think because they were asking sort of like quite personal really questions. Really intimate questions, um, yeah. And so like one of them was like, oh, ha- have you also had sex with anyone else in that sort of the past however long? So that if there was any other yeah. DNA, they could then discount So everything it. was done to protect you. These questions were done and he was asked to leave the room. So if you had to disclose something, you yeah. could do that privately. That's good. Yeah. And so they asked questions about um, the man... Uh, like did I know like where he was from or anything like that um and I think that sort of helped them because I wasn't 100% sure like what country he was from Mm -hmm. or anything so they had like preventative measures so they they gave me um a course of um pep to take which is a pill that's got that it's a post-exposure um sort of HIV thing so just in case he was carrying it um just as a preventative thing for me so they gave me that. Um, they also gave me um, the morning after pill. And I had to then go and have like an examination. So I can't remember if anyone was allowed in the room with me. Um, but I decided that I just want to go in yeah. by myself. I, I'm fairly sure that if if you are going through this process and you do want someone to be with you, they will t- they will do everything yeah. to help support you as much as they can. So I think the thing here is, if you're not sure, just ask the question. Or if there's yeah. something that you want, or if there's something you're not comfortable with, just say. Yeah. So, yeah, the nurses were really nice. And um, there were a couple of them in there. Um, and, yeah, I had to get into a little gown. Um, again, they took another urine sample, took my blood... And then they just asked me a few more questions about what had happened so that they could sort of swab me in the right places that they sort of knew. And that was a bit daunting because... Yeah, how did that make you feel? Because effectively your body has become a crime scene. I know that sounds really awful and they have to deal with that clinically. How did that make Mm. you feel? I think at that point I was still a bit sort of, I guess, in a daze from it all. So I kind of... I guess sort of zoned out a bit but I do remember thinking gosh they are literally swabbing me everywhere and like even just like on your skin you know just in case he had touched like your skin at all and I mean they they tried to do it as sort of quickly as possible but like obviously being thorough and they were they did make me feel quite comfortable as well they like spoke to me the whole time and sort of sort of made little jokes here and there just to sort of make it a bit more... Just to lighten yeah. the mood because it is a very dark place to go, isn't it? And yeah. so you got reassurance from them and support and they explained everything as they were going along, I think, which is important to know as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so they, they did that um, and then afterwards I had to go and wait in a different room and it was like... It was, again, it was like a nice, like, sort of lounge as well, so it wasn't really clinical. So it wasn't you going into a police station and, no. you know, it, it was. it's a different setting, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, so that's when they gave me, like, all the pills and stuff and um, and then they even gave you, like, a little sort of goodie bag sort of thing. They gave, like, you leaflets and then this little bag had, like, I don't know, like, moisturiser and... Um, just like a little care package. That's to make you feel that... And they do care. So yeah. So that, that's a really nice thing. Yeah. I can't remember what else, if they asked me anything else. Um, but they sort of explained, like, if you need, uh, like, more help, there's, like, lots of different places. Um, they put a referral through to um, a sexual health clinic, which then, over the course of the next few months, um, I had to go... A few, for a few times just to take blood again yeah. blood urine and stuff so they could see if there are any like um stis yeah. or i um, know no, it's it's not nice is it no one likes to walk into a sexual health clinic however mm-hmm. 
on top of what happened to you, mm. you know, the crime that happened to you, on top of that, if you'd have ended up with a sexual infection, mm. untreated, or with an unwanted pregnancy, yeah. how much more difficult would that have made things? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they really do sort of, I guess, try and protect you as much as possible. And, like, I had to get a, um, I think it was a hepatitis B vaccine as well because I hadn't had that before. Um, and that was just another thing that they were just... Just to safeguard you. Yeah. So I think here the question is it's it's clinical, it's safeguarding, it, it's ma- it's looking at the medical side of it, but it's also, you know, making sure that you're okay. Yeah. And, that's, and, and then... The interview, what was the interview like? Because I think a lot of people have in their head that it is like in a police station across a table with the big light interrogation mm. kind of thing. Tell us how how that was. Yes, yeah, so, um, so I went literally a couple of days afterwards because um, they said the sooner the better because then it's sort of fresh in your memory and then you can kind of get it out of the way um, and done. And for doing like a recorded interview, it would then mean if it, did go to court I wouldn't have to sort of relive that bit and do all the talking there they yeah. could just play, play I think that is a really important aspect about this because you know back in the day victims of sexual offences would have to stand in the dock where the suspect was and give their evidence in chief without referring to their statement so then you'd write a statement the officer would write a statement and then you would have to go in and actually tell the story again. And sometimes, I mean, yours took years to get to court, didn't it? So, mm. how, that, But it's changed now, hasn't it? Thank God it's changed. So how is it? How was it? Um, it was okay. Um, I had to go to the police headquarters. Um, and so my dad took me. Um, and so then we went into like a little sort of waiting area and then got taken to a different room. Um, where the police officer in charge of my case um, sort of just explained what was going to happen and the whole setup. So we went into, well, my my dad stayed in there and then I went into the recording room, which was sort of like, it had like a sofa and and stuff. So it wasn't too, it wasn't like a table, like yeah. how you see like um, people being interrogated. So it was quite um, removed from that police station environment. Yeah, yeah. So they had um, they had a couple of cameras in there, but they weren't. They were kind of almost kind of like not hidden, but, but discreet. Like, yeah, so that it was more relaxed. I not guess not in your face. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so then they had someone in a different room, just making sure that it was like recording, and you, so that I didn't have to redo it um yeah so the police officer sort of just said sort of what what happened and she said like try and use like all your senses so if there's anything that you remember like hearing or smelling or anything um and also you had to be quite um like graphic just so that people don't you like don't assume yeah something so she would have to ask me like you know exactly what happened like where and did how. he touch you what physically happened yeah. that's tough isn't it that's good that's yeah. going to be really tough but of course it's your evidence and you have to go that you have to go there mm. um but i think you know the plus side of this is you're not having to say it standing up in court and doing it you're in a, a safe environment yeah and also i i saw something there was um i'm, I'm addicted to 24 hours in police custody with an ex-job yeah there was a, a case um where it was a young girl quite vulnerable and she literally couldn't get the words out and the officer who was interviewing her just said to her just write it down so she wrote it down the officer read it out which is mm. is you know sometimes that can happen yeah and because it's being recorded like um visually as well then I guess that means like the police officer can't say oh this is what it says but you can actually see in the footage it keeps that integrity of the evidence and it is yeah because these these kind of things I mean you know obviously sexual violence is very different but just even having sex we Mm. don't talk to our friends or your mum about how it actually happened, what yeah. what went on. So talking about that when you've been attacked by a complete stranger, mm. it's not something that anyone's ever going to be used to, are they? No. And I think the sort of person I am as well, like, that's not, like, I don't really, I didn't find, I found it really hard to 
to be that graphic. Yeah. Um, but I sort of knew that I had to. And um, she'd be there and, like, prompt me, like, if, like, I was finding it hard to say something, she'd sort of ask a few more questions. And um, I had to do some diagrams as well of, like, how I remember the room um, and, like, label, like, where I was sat. Yeah. Um, and for, like, how much... Because, like, like, at one point I said, like, I remember seeing, like, the bottle was, like, nearly empty um, of the vodka. So I had to draw a picture of the bottle and then, like, put a line where I, like, saw. So it was basically everything and anything that you can remember. Um, And because some of it I couldn't remember, like, that was fine as well. She gave me the space to think. Yeah. And, like, try and... Because it is when you've been through that kind of trauma, sometimes, like, the brain does shut down. Mm. Um to protect itself almost. So um, I think the fact that officers actually have an understanding of that and can give you that space to just collect yourself and recall what you can. And also, I, you know, there's we talk about spiking. Mm. There are moments, and I'm, I, I, this is just a personal opinion, but I think actually you were spiked mm. because you'd had big, some big memory blocks. Yeah. Um, and, and that's understandable as well. You know, you can't... You're not an evidence gatherer, you're a victim. So mm. you just can say, you can only say what you know and what you remember and everything else can be pieced together. I think that's important mm. to know that you don't, if there is something that you don't remember, it's fine to say that as well. Yeah. And then also she said, like, if you go away from here and then you remember something just to, like, let her know and then we could record or whatever. And because it did get to trial, before the trial, I had to watch through my recorded interview which was quite weird yeah being so long ago um and then to say like if you've got any comments on that like maybe if you think something's not right or um there's something else that you want to add to that then they will write it down so that that's also said in court um so even after you've done that if if there is something else that comes up that you remember it's not like that is your... That's really good to know, actually. I wasn't aware of that and yeah. because it can happen. Mm. You know, it, it, especially when the offence has just happened, you get this trauma. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's really worth knowing that they will revisit it and you can add and say, oh, I don't think that was quite right. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that was basically all that happened at the station. So after that, it was sort of... That bit was done and I could go home. And then it was just all these other appointments... Um, that I'd have like at the sexual health clinic um I was given options to like have counseling and um they did point me to a few places if I wanted that support um but at the time I was already seeing a counsellor so I said that I didn't I'd, I'd like to stick with her because yeah. I'd been with her for like a year. I think that's important as well with counselling. It's got to be someone you're comfortable with. And if mm. you do get offered a counsellor and you're not comfortable, say, mm. and find someone that you can connect with because that's really, really important. And everyone's different, aren't they? It's like, you know, someone may not want counselling at the time because they really mm. don't want to talk about it. But then further down the line, with the, mm. because you can get flashbacks and it can impact on your life. Yeah. Then you, so you need to know that it's one size doesn't fit all, does it? Yeah, and they will like um, point you to people that are like specially trained in like sexual assaults yeah. um, and stuff, rather than just like any old counselor. So, um, like I know my counselor wasn't specifically in the know about all of all of the sort of ins and outs of that but because I did feel comfortable with her yeah I'd rather yeah have gone with her. I think that was the right decision yeah um so yeah so that happened um and then it kind of just started the sort of waiting really and it, was it was a big waiting game wasn't it how long did it take to get to court to the trial date it was probably about three years wow I think um but the initial like investigation point so when I got the date for the trial that I got that date a year before the trial so technically two years but then a year of waiting for that trial 
I mean, obviously we had the pandemic and lockdown and things, which I think affected the court process. But even so, three mm. years is, in my opinion, way too long. What do you think about that? It's definitely too long. It should be a lot shorter. How, how did it affect you, that waiting? Um, well, when I knew that I had, like, when I knew there was something that might come up that I might need to be contacted about, um, because there was, it seemed at one point like I was being wrong by, like, everybody. I had, like, lots of appointments to go to and everything. I would just sit, I remember just sat, sat at work and just being paranoid that my phone was going to go off at any moment, um, which made it quite hard, actually, to be at work because um, I was constantly anxious. Yeah, you, well, you would be. You're, you're anxious, w- waiting all that time, and it, it's got to affect your day-to-day life because it's almost all you can become focused on, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Um, something that did ha- help, though, because you can... Um, if you want to, you can be given um, an ISVA, which is an independent sexual violence advisor. Okay, I've not heard of that. Um, so, what that took, that did take a while to get. I was sort of passed around a lot, and then, I, yeah, I don't really know. But she sort of would be someone that would like maybe ring me every week, um, see how I was, if I needed you know any information she so would... she could act like as a third party conduit yeah. and, and an advocate for you yeah. is that I think that's really important to know if there's someone out there who can do all that for you let them do it yeah so if I hadn't heard anything from the police then she would chase them for me um which was really nice to sort of have that out of my hands yeah um and then they're also allowed to actually come into the courtroom with you if it ends up in court and you actually go in they can she literally sat like not next to me but very close to me that's good so you Um, know you've got that support of someone you've already already talked to yeah um and then because they have obviously supported so many people going through the court um process they sort of know they can give you more information that maybe i don't know maybe like the, the, the police can't give you um and they're always there to if you have a question or if you need them then you can sort of ring them um, and they can point you to, if you at first like declined like counselling or something, if you then decide that you want to talk to someone, yeah. they can then refer you to different places. And we're going to be discussing, and I think it's important to say this, we're talking about signposting and where you can go to get help and support yeah. and different ways of reporting, because there are lots of different ways. We're going to talk about that in detail later on, because... We don't want to just leave you hanging. If your anything resonates with you, we are between between us. Sophie and I are going to signpost all the help that's out there, and there is a lot, isn't there? Mm. So, but going back to the actual court process, what was it like? Yeah. Because you know, we again from TV, you see like the big desk, the guy with the big wig, and it all being, and you stand in basically giving your own evidence. What? How different is that from to your reality? It was definitely different. Um, it wasn't as sort of daunting as what I'd seen on TV. Um, like, because I got to look around the courtroom beforehand. So that's one of the things that they sort of say, would you like to just come and see sort of like where you'll be waiting, all the facilities and stuff so that you're familiar with it. Um, so I, I got the opportunity to do that, even though they changed the caught at last minute again that's a bit of a curveball what do you know why that happened what happened um I'm not really sure what happened but yeah I think it was for me there's there's two things coming out of this the process should be much faster they should be fast-tracked really both for you and and also for the perpetrator or Mm. you know because there are people out there who might get found not guilty they're waiting all that time so lots of lives get affected. So they should be fast track for this nature of crime. And also, I think, you know, there should be designated courts that you know you're going to that court, you're familiar with it, because unfamiliar sort of surroundings can give even more anxiety, can't they? Mm, yeah. And, um, yeah, because it was also moved to, like, a town that I hadn't really been to before as well. So I it was sort of completely... Totally alien to you. you. So by the time that got changed, um, there was no time for me to do a pre-visit. Right. Um, But when I was there on the day, they did have a courtroom spare, so they could say, this is 
they took me there and they said this isn't the exact room that you're going to be in but it's very similar that one at the first um court that I went to it kind of just looked almost like an office um it was sort of like white walls not this dark all the oak panelling and yeah. yeah um and it just looked like an office um whereas the second one was a li- little bit more cool. like formal yeah but again it wasn't like how you would see on tv really but and did you have to see the suspect in court could you see him no no so i got offered um so i had a few options i could do a video link so i'd be somewhere else and it would just be linked in to the courtroom um so the cross-examination would kind of go through a video link or if i was wanting to actually go into the courtroom um i was offered like um a screen so that i couldn't see him and he couldn't see me but i could still see um like the jury and the judge and like the people that were asking me the questions yeah and they the way they did it as well was they would get me in first and all set and then they'd bring him in and then once it was done they'd get him out first and then then I'd So there was out. no opportunity of crossing over, anything yeah. like that. I think, yeah, that's um it's a really sensible way of doing it. And and the great thing about, you know, your interview that you did on video, it's what we call your evidence in chief. Mm-hmm. So before this memorandum interview came in a victim would have to stand and give all that evidence in person. Yeah. It, behind a screen, yeah, fair enough, but it, that's still very difficult, especially like three years down the line. Mm. Um, but your video interview, that was your evidence, wasn't it? That was played to the court first before anything else happened. Yeah, and I didn't have to be in the room while that played yeah. either. So that's literally straight away after, I think they may have had like a little break, but straight away after so that it was already sort of fresh in their minds. Yeah. Um, then that's when I had to... Came into the witness stand and so you were cross-examined and spoken to by both the prosecution and the defence? Yeah, so so the barrister, um, like, he came and said hi first whilst I was waiting, um, which was really nice to know who was sort of representing, like, my Yeah, because when you're a bit anxious and they've all got gowns on, you sometimes don't know who's yeah. who. Oh, yeah, that's... and he was really nice and he sort of, like, it's his job sort of thing, like, made me feel like I was in good hands, sort yeah. of. Um, and he kind of said, I'm only going to ask you, like, a couple of questions just to reiterate, like, specific um, Key points. points yeah. yeah. And then, so that only took, like, five minutes and then the rest of the time was cross-examination. How was that? Um, <laughs> it was, like, looking back, I think after I'd come out of there and I'd processed everything, I think that's when I thought, okay, that was, I did not like that. But while I was actually in there, I kind of, I guess, just went into sort of a, right, let's just do this sort of thing. Um, and I got to sit down as well. Um, rather than standing while I was asked, being asked questions, which was actually really helpful. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I know if I was standing, my knees would be going, and um, it just sort of like keeps you a bit more like grounded. Yeah, because this this experience is so alien to anyone, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's it is hopefully a once in a lifetime thing that you have yeah. to go through, but it is it's nerve wracking. Yeah. And what was the barrister like who um, was cross examining you for the defence? She was, um, I don't know how to describe her really. She, I like at the start, like she's like, oh, would you like to be called this or this, um, like more formal or yeah, um, which was, I guess that was quite. So did she almost sort of start playing the good cop bad cop thing? Um... I guess to be fair, because it did make me feel a little bit more yeah at ease. But I think one of the things actually that's really important to mention is that on TV you see them sort of going right at you and like question, question, yeah. question, question. But it's a lot slower actually in court. And so I had time in between questions to sort of like give myself almost like a yeah. pep talk because people had to write things down and like 
I know at one point she tried to ask a question and the judge stopped her and was like, I need to write this down, like, give me some time. I think that's, um, that's important to mention as well because, you know, there are guidelines about, you know, you can't be just attacked mm-hmm. for anything. Yes, they've got a job to, to, to probe uh, your, your account. But, you know, the thing, the thing is, it is your account. So I think if you, you are there and if, you know, it's just your truth, you just say, can you just give me a minute? Or you take your time, you don't... Us Brits are really good at this, aren't we? We just jump straight in and go, yes, and we want to mm. answer everything. But just yeah. just take a moment and and be, you know, so brave to this point anyway. Just be brave and say, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that question. Can you mm. ask me that again? Or can, I, I can't quite remember. Can you just give me a second, please? Yeah. You know, you're, that's you right. And yeah. I think people need to know that. Yeah. And they said, like, multiple times to me, if you need a break, just say. Yeah. So, yeah, so I don't think that you kind of have to sort of stick it out and just keep powering through. Like, if you genuinely need a second, like, you can you can say, I, this is too much, can I just have a break, please, yeah. or something. And to, yeah, I think just sort of just being honest, and if you don't remember something, just say you don't remember. I know that I got told that, like, don't try and give an answer because if it's not, you know exactly yeah. what you remember like they can pick on that and, and twist um, it a little bit and yeah yeah so sort of just answer the question as it is don't try and like I know that I'm someone that will ramble and ramble on so I had to sort of keep reminding myself literally just answer what they've yeah. said and you know if there's silence like don't feel like you need to yes because that's what we often do as well yeah. we always try and fill a silence mm. um but just yeah just take take your time now crown court is where these uh offenses go to they can't be tried at magistrates court and that is a jury of 12 men women um from a selection of the public who decide they listen to all the evidence and they make a decision of whether that suspect is guilty or not guilty mm. um i haven't done jury service i'm not sure i'd really want to but i've i've been in court quite a lot mm. how long did it take after you know the whole trial had been done until you got that verdict that guilty verdict can you remember how long it was and were you did you have to wait in the court no i didn't have to after i'd done my bit um i could leave and then i think I went on like a Tuesday and the trial finished on either a Thursday or Friday. And it wasn't till the next week that I got the verdict. Um, really? That long? Yeah, I guess because of the weekend as well. So nobody... Yeah, so I guess was... the, dis- the jury would get dis- discharged over the weekend. They'd go back. And actually, it's that for me, when I was a police officer on behalf of victims, that wait for that verdict was awful Mm. but the fact that everything is debated by a jury for such a long time means they've gone into so much detail and that verdict Mm. is one that is absolutely clear so I think you know at the time it's horrible but in a way it's a good thing yeah and I think I was I guess quite lucky with mine that apparently it took them a short amount of time I don't know what the length the normal length would be but they said that they came back relatively yeah. quickly with like a unanimous yeah. guilty verdict so I might have had to I think they told me at the time you know it could take up to like two weeks to get yeah. the verdict which I was like oh gosh like I just want it all done yeah. now but yeah so I didn't have to wait too long really even though the wait seemed like <laughs> It seemed long, but I think knowing that I didn't have to... I wasn't going to get a call over the weekend, I could sort of relax in a way at the weekend, thinking my phone's not going to go because yep. it physically isn't. So did you long. make the decision not to go, not to be in court for the verdict? Yes. So I think I could have you been. You can, yeah. yeah. You can have that option. Yeah, I think I just wanted to only be there for when I actually had to be there. Yeah. And, yeah, because I think there were other... Places that I could, I, I'm not sure if I could have gone to like beforehand at the other courts when he was putting his plea and stuff. I can't remember if I was even. It wasn't really a question that I even had because no. I just wanted to keep it to keep it as, to a minimum. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but it, yeah, there's still like yeah, there's still lots of things that that like happened and like throughout like the whole process that 
like are worth like talking about like all the other evidence that they had to get from me like not just the physical evidence but like my phone medical records counseling notes it there was like a lot of stuff that I had to sort of hand over yeah that's that's to me that's a real you've already been invaded Mm. your body's been invaded and then that to me is a real invasion of your life Mm. um Crikey, I don't know what I'd do without my phone. Um, but yeah, but I think this is important that we discuss around this area because it's, mm. it's needed. So you, you've had counselling prior to the offence because you, you suffer, you know, you, mm. you're quite open about it, as a, a lot of us do with, mm. with quite high anxiety levels. Mm. And they demanded your counselling records. Yes. So that wasn't straight away. So sort of rewinding back. So when everything sort of went off to the labs, when it first came back, they didn't find any DNA on my swabs, but they were going to send it off again and do, I think, something different. I'm not 100% sure what they were doing. So I had to then wait a bit longer. So at one point, I did think that it would have, what do you call it, the case would just be closed. Yeah. And um, which was, that was like a strange sort of place like not knowing sort of like if nothing comes back this probably isn't going to go any further and it wasn't until they then did find DNA that then it started going forward a bit more and um, that's when they had to question him again with his story because his story at first was nothing at all happened and so they had to go back and say actually we have your DNA and sort of let him So his story changed. Yeah. So he dug himself a great big hole there. Yeah. At the time, I kind of thought it wasn't fair that he could then be given an opportunity to sort of... Change his story. Yeah. I I, At the time, I was like, well, he said nothing happened, and this clearly proves that something did, so why should he get the chance to... But, yes, but he made up a completely... Like, I'd, I wasn't told, really. I wasn't allowed to know what he'd said, mm. but um, he had still made up, apparently, something to explain away the evidence. Oh, nothing would surprise me when yeah. um, when you're looking at interviewing suspects. They can come out with, like, quite a few different stories. Yeah. But, um, what, the, uh, what I wanted to say is about the, the counselling records and stuff. With with court, there's something called dis- disclosure. Mm. So the defence often, <laughs> sorry any defence lawyers out there, but they go on a fishing expedition. Mm. So they'll ask for your counselling records, your medical records, in the hope that they'll find something. However, they didn't use any of those, did they? No. Um, because it's not relevant to you being raped. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing to mention here is, you know, that, just being asked for all that, knowing that all that in, that personal information is going across, can cause you massive anxiety. Mm. But I hopefully this will give someone some reassurance that if that does happen, it doesn't necessarily mean everything's going to come out in court and mm. all your phone texts are going to be read out, everything like that. Yeah. But um, it, it's not nice and it is an invasion yeah. of privacy. And yeah. I think, yeah, you've got to be seen to be fair to both sides, but I think yeah. that's a little bit unfair. Yeah, like, I think as I was, like, being asked for, say, my phone, I was only without my phone for about two days. Okay. Um, so it was relatively quick. Oh, that's not so bad then. Um, in fact, the um, officer or whoever it was that took my phone um, actually came to my work. So, like, I didn't have to go anywhere or anything. It was sort of... I had to sign some things yeah. and um, I think give like, I don't know if I had to unlock it or passcode yeah. or anything. And he said, um, he, he like reassured me in a way. He was like, we're literally just taking like a snapshot of like, I don't know if it was like two weeks before and two weeks after right. of like, I guess everything, like all social media, internet usage, yeah. um, messages and everything. And <laughs> he did make me, he was like, Trust me, he was like, if there's anything on your phone, like, I've seen it all. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, there's not, but... Um, but that's, that's good to know, and it's good that they did it quite quickly. So I think, yeah. you know, actually, talking about all this is really good because it's it's showing that there are positives when normally people would go, oh, I'm going to go and be interrogated, my phone's going to be taken off me, they're going to be scrolling through absolutely everything. Yeah. Uh, not not the case, but you can think that. So it should yeah. delay fears and anxiety around yeah. that. And to be fair, even though he said that, I still had the worries. And I yeah. was like, 
you know you have really personal conversations of course you do. and you don't and like that you think they're just with you and somebody else and now like it's like oh i told someone a secret like three years yeah. ago are they going to pick that out? Do you know it's made like... me think, I'm going to have to go through my phone now. I'm going to go through everything. Go, right, delete, 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 delete. But they can get things back, though, if you delete of them course. as well. So yeah. it's very scary, in a way, to give your phone over. Yeah. Like, it's like a personal diary, isn't it? Yeah. So there was that. And then I think probably not long after that, that's when I was then asked, I think I think CPS must have asked for, for my counselling notes and medical notes. And for the counselling... No, it's like the police officer said, you know, it'll be, I think, oh, I can't remember if it was like six weeks beforehand and like a few weeks after. Yeah. So it was a it was a decent chunk yeah. of stuff. And she said sort of, you can say no, but you might still have to end up giving them over if, you know. Yeah. Like, um, and I, again, in a counselling session, you're literally... Opening your whole yeah. world, your whole self to... Yeah. In confidence. Yeah. And to be, like, thinking, like, oh, gosh, what have I said that, you know, someone could pick out and twist and be, like, and try and make you, like, less credible or anything. Yeah. But let's just reinforce that those were not used in the trial. No. Um, Probably was just a bit of a fishing expedition from the defence. You comply with it and then just forget about it. Yeah. Now, he got sentenced, didn't he, to prison. Yes. And what was the sentence? Um, six years. But it he he could be out in three. Yeah. Um, in fact, he probably would will be. Which I, yeah, I still think that's a very... I, I don't like the way that sentencing is done. Because if you say six years, it should be six years. I agree. Um, it makes it sound almost like better. Like, oh yeah, he got six years. But actually, he's not going to be in there for that long. And I think like we were talking about before, like... It should be sort of six years, and if your, you know, your behaviour's not good or anything, then time added on to that. Exactly. Rather because than... you get time off mm. for good behaviour, don't you? If you go on a yeah. course or study for something, um, yeah. then you you get a reduction in your sentence. And yeah, I agree with you. I think the sentence should be served, mm. and then if they do something wrong, then. that's a deterrent and that is for me someone considering what they've done yeah yeah because I think it's I think it's three years in prison and then when he comes out he'll have like is it is it be on license be on license for the rest of that sentence so it means he'll have uh fairly strict uh things that he'll have to report to the probation service might have to check in and curfews that that kind of thing um and also he'll be on the sex uh offenders registered won't he yeah will it that be for life i think so yeah. yeah and and then they also said like if i wanted to have a restraining order um on him then i could so i have got i've got that Good. and that's i think that's for life as well yeah will you be told when he's let out when he's released because he's it, you're sort of in the same area aren't you we won't talk yeah. about what area it is yeah but you, you are and that's a fear for you isn't it yeah so i will be told and i also so shortly after everything in the sentence, I can't remember, I was contacted by, um, I'm going to have to try and find that out, but a lady who works for, I don't know, basically she will update me on, if I want, on anything like if there's an appeal. So that will be a probation officer, or, yeah. That's um, the probation service. And if I've got any sort of questions about the actual, like the legal stuff. Yeah. And so, like, things, if if he gets moved to a different prison... I mean, she can't tell me what prison he's at or what he'd be moved to or anything, but she can say he has been moved um, or anything like that. But I've only spoken to her a couple of times and she just will basically keep an eye on the case and let me know if anything sort of happens. Yeah. So, I think... Because I didn't really know about that. And so it was kind of like, right, once court's done and the sentence and everything, it's like, right, okay... That's that bit of my life closed. But then there's also, you know, he will get out yeah. one day. So it doesn't really stop. It doesn't end, yeah. It's not It's not just this period. It, it carries on. And we're going to talk some more about this. But I think we have covered quite a lot of ground. I think we should have a little break. Yeah. 
you have a rest and then we're we're going to add on to this podcast we're going to be back and we're going to talk about signposting and and other aspects of rape because this that's the problem it's so individual to each person isn't it everything Mm. is different yeah so I think there's a lot more to discuss Sophie I'm going to keep hold of you for a bit longer if that's all right (laughs) that's fine this is Claire with Sophie for the victims voices behind the crime so I'd like to talk about the aftermath of this offence because it doesn't just stop at conviction. I know you're a Christian and you went to a, a Christian conference not long after the offence happened and there was a lot of talk about forgiveness. I've got my own views on that, Sophie, but obviously I want to hear from you and I know that you wrote something to yourself in a letter and I think it's quite important that we hear that from you from your words would you mind reading it out for us yeah of course um i haven't really thought about how i feel about the rape not really i have many emotions and i'm starting to see what is behind some of them thinking about forgiving him it is very fresh and weird to think about forgiving so soon but i guess that's what we're called to as christians i think i have found it difficult But I also feel I can try and forgive because in reality, I feel like it was my fault or at least a lot my fault. I know I need to forgive myself. Blaming it on myself makes it easier to cope with. I'm not used to not blaming myself for everything that happens in my life. This is the first time I've done something about something and it feels so out of the ordinary for me. I don't want to make someone else's life worse, which is why part of me feels guilty about involving the police. But I shouldn't. I'm allowed to look out for myself and potentially help others who may have or would fall victim to him in the future. Because the swabs didn't find his DNA, I feel like a liar. Finding that out made my heart sink. Fear of being judged and not believed. Fear that he'll get off the hook, off bail and then try to contact me. I'm angry and hurt about what he did. How can someone even do that? I think about it every day, still wondering if I passed out or blocked some of it out of my memory. I can't walk around my roads now, especially in the dark. I'm paranoid about every white van that drives past. Now and again, I worry my boyfriend will think I'm gross and blame me. One lie I've always believed is that I'm not worth much. I'm nothing special, and that has become apparent apparent with this too. Like, it doesn't matter that it happened to me. It would matter more if it had been someone else. And on some level, I then feel bad at at talking about it making it a thing and receiving all the love and care from my family and friends like it's for attention, which it's not. My brain can be an annoying place. Sophie, moving forward into 2023, uh, what would you write to yourself now, having gone through the whole process? I'd really like to hear that from you. Yeah, so I wrote this. Hi, Soph. This has just happened. Police have been called and it will be a long journey ahead. Your anxiety will be the worst. You'll question your judgment, your worth and just you as a person. But it will all be worth it. You are brave. I know now even I question that at times. I just went along with it all. Sort of got on the train and didn't get off. But that is brave. You didn't back down. You didn't back out of it. You went right into court and kept your call. Would it have been easier to not tell anyone and not go through the next two and a half years not having done anything? Possibly, but where would that have got you? He'd be walking around like he did nothing wrong. He could have done it again to someone else. You'd still be living in fear of bumping into him, of walking down the street and panic every time you saw a white van. Okay, now you have a bit of fear of his family seeing you and having a go at you, but he is not on the streets anymore. Your biggest struggle will be coming to terms with the fact that it wasn't your fault. If you hadn't gone to the shop in the first place, if you weren't stupid enough to say yes to the free drink, heck, even if you had one and then had just gone home. Comparison, no one else would be so stupid, right? You are a wonderful, friendly and trusting person. And as your good friend will tell you, those are great characteristics to have. And it was just someone who saw that and took advantage of it. That isn't your issue. That is more telling about his character. Fear, anxiety, doubts, flashbacks. You'll feel alone as no one you know has gone through this process. But that's okay. You can be the change. 
You will use this to hopefully help others who may find themselves in the same situation. In fact, that point there will be where you get your strength from, knowing that no matter the outcome, you can help others. No matter the outcome, he will have had those years of fear, worry, hopefully regret and guilt. With all the lies he makes up, it will be quite evident that he knows he did wrong. Also, please don't play down what happened to you. It was a big deal and you are bound to have feel big feelings about it. You will get through it. You have so much to look forward to. Your partner will be amazing and you'll end up marrying him. The next couple of years won't be all bad. So you have lots of people you can lean on, people who will pray for you. You'll have friends who have been through rape and sexual assault who you'll talk to. They won't be able to relate to the report to court process, but they love you and want the best for you. You've got this. You are stronger than you know, and you will come out of this a stronger person than you thought you could ever be. And I'm incredibly proud to be sharing this podcast with you, Sophie. And I think you are very special and very brave. And if it helps just one person out there, you've done an amazing job. Thank you. This type of crime is so unique because everyone's different, be it age, gender, faith, ethnicity, and overriding fear with a whole remit of different circumstances um, there's largely no CCTV, no witnesses, and it's often a very lonely place to be in. So what would you like to say to any rape victims or victims of sexual offences out there? I'd say firstly, tell someone, um, even if they don't understand, it will make it a lot less lonelier. Report it, just do it. It's not going to be easy, but it's so worth it. Rape is rape. There's no ifs or buts about it. And if you don't want to report it straight away, to go to a SARC centre and have those tests and stuff done, swabs done, because then later in life you can always go back to it. There'll also be lots of triggers um, that you'll have in the future. And a big one that I found was um, having a smear test. I know a lot of people who wouldn't have their smear test because of their experience with rape. But it's important to get done. Someone's crime isn't worth your life. There's lots of ways that you can sort of make it a little bit easier. Like taking someone with you into that room and actually telling that nurse what has happened so that they can be a bit more sensitive with it because it's a really um, tough thing to, to have to do. I think that's a really important point. And also the other aspect of this is that it could be historical it could be a boyfriend, a husband, but what you said, rape is rape. And we will signpost uh, and give some guidance on where you can go to get help and support. Don't be a statistic, be a survivor. If we don't stand up and face it, things will never change and things need to. You can find us on our Facebook page. It's called Behind the Crime, The Victim's Voices. Or email me at claire.graham at behindthecrime.co.uk. There's no E in Claire. You can also message me in complete confidence. We're not a support organisation, but we can signpost you to get help if you've been a victim. And have a look at these sites. They're really useful. Rape Crisis, The Survivors Trust, SARCs, that stands for Sexual Assault Referral Centre and they are across the country nationwide and also victim support. But if you don't feel you can reach out to any of the above, just reach out to anyone. You can reach out to us or speak to a friend or just write it down. This is Claire Graham for Behind the Crime, The Victim's Voices with huge thanks to Sophie for her courage in speaking out. We hope that if it's helped just one of you out there, her bravery was worth it.